We are so grateful to the Lord for MCC. It was good for us to be home, but it was better to come back here. We really missed all of you. And uh, it truly was a very, very busy time that we had at home. Now we get to come back and have a vacation from a vacation. (laughs) And uh, we are so grateful for your prayers, for Katie and her sister and her family. And we also are grateful to you for all the prayers that you had for us about my tooth. It really was not about my tooth. It was about the Han family, or Don Han, that we needed to get in touch with the Hoshinos, who was our dentist, and um, we were able to connect uh, that. And that was a Lord thing, God thing, and she's going to live in their share house, and that's uh, really an answer to prayer for them. So God works all things together for good to those who love him and are called by his name. And we're going to finish off with uh, chapter 8. I think we're going to finish it, unless... Dan thinks we left out some things, and I really appreciate, I listened to Dan's two sermons on chapter 8. He did an excellent, excellent job. <laughs> Praise to the Lord. Thank you, Dan. And uh, I don't know how I'm going to be able to finish it, but I'll try. He left the best part to me. And so we just really appreciate the fact that God's word is the living word and it is full of truth and treasure that we can delve into, take it apart, put it back together, and really be able to handle it with the power of the Holy Spirit and be able to understand what these words mean and apply to our present-day lives, although they were written, these words were written many, many years ago. I'm going to read from verse 31 to 39. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquered through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor death, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. This passage here, as I was meditating on it and trying to understand and be be able to put it in a way that we could all understand, 
came out to me as seven questions that we've talked about Paul and his questions in the early chapters of Romans where he was like a defense lawyer or a prosecuting attorney who had questions that would lead to understand what the case was that he was trying to either prosecute or to defend. Paul is an expert at asking questions. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees and knew the law and knew how to deal with the law. In many ways, he was a lawyer, a good lawyer. We would probably not be able to afford his lawyer fees. He was so good. But he lays out the gospel of God concerning Jesus Christ in a lawyerese way with words that can parse out what the realities are for us as believers in Jesus Christ. So much so that it has a legal base to it. It's not presumption. It's not just somebody's thoughts or somebody sitting in a cave somewhere thinking ethereal thoughts. No, this is logical. It has reason to it. It has foundation to it. And that's what we've discovered these weeks that we've been delving into this book. It's an amazing book. It's a foundation for us in our Christian lives. And if this is the first time that you've gone through Romans, I would encourage you, make this the top of your list of the books that you will read from year to year. Home in on Romans. Get the truths. Get it deep into your hearts so that you know it. And it's part of you. It's part of what God has instilled in your life because of Jesus Christ. Without that, you will flounder in your Christian life. You will be able to be overcome by the tribulations, trials, and things that we face on a daily basis. Get hold of the truths of the book of Romans. I would challenge you that if your Bible is too heavy to put into your, your suitcase when you go to vacation, just take the book of Romans out <laughs> and put it into your suitcase, slip it in there, and read it on vacation. Well, you know I'm being facetious. I'm joking. <laughs> Don't tear your Bible up. But it is that important to us. So I'm going to look at these questions. There are seven of them. The first one is in verse 31. And by the way, these questions, although there are seven, they're joined together by links, one question to the next. And it's a discovery type explanation for understanding what Paul is summarizing that we have gone through Romans so that we can understand it clearly. These seven questions lead us to the very foundation of what Paul has begun to explain to us from chapter 1 all the way through 
to this chapter. Dan did an excellent job in summarizing and uh, reviewing of those seven chapters and into the eighth chapter. These questions are nailing the truths of what Paul has been talking about all the way through to this point. You know what I mean by nailing? It's like you got a nail and you just bring the hammer down on it and sink that nail right in there and it holds the foundation. That's what these questions are. They're like seven nails that are nailing the truths of what Paul is talking about in Romans. Think of them that way. Paul is saying, what then shall we say to these things? You know, I'm, I'm getting to be an old man, and words don't come to me that quickly anymore. And sometimes when Katie and I are talking, she'll say, honey, well, what are you talking about? Well, I'm talking about that thing. Kent laughed. I think he has been in that kind of situation with Mayumi. <laughs> well, no, it's, no, it's not that thing. It's the other thing. Yeah, oh yes, oh yes, that, that thing, that's right. What then shall we say to these things? What is Paul talking about, these things? Well, it could go all the way back to chapter 1, verse 1 and bringing this forward. But I thought as I was putting this together, well, Dan already did the review, so I can't do it again. But I think that really what Paul is talking about is not the all seven chapters, but he's talking about the verses just prior to this. Starting with verse 28, he's going back, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Well, okay, remember Dan said, if you like the big words, these are the big words. For those who he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. So Paul, I think, is talking about these big words. He's trying to explain it, break it down for us, so that we can understand it. All those words there in those verses are extremely important. And they require us to look at them and examine what the meanings of those words are. They mean something in the sequence as well as the original word of what Paul is talking about. Such big words like predestination. What does predestination mean? This is an English congregation. Many of us are at different levels of English ability. But do you know the word destiny? How many know the word destiny and what it means? What about 
predestiny. I want you to find out what that means in these next weeks as you think about Romans. I'm not going to give you the answer. I'm sorry. But I will tell you this. It doesn't mean that God is sitting up there and say, okay, you're saved, you're not. You are not good enough for heaven, you are good enough. God is not doing that. That is not what that means. Some of my Reformed brothers take these words like elect and predestination, and they use it in that manner. And so some of them I've met here in Japan as missionaries. And I'll say, well, what in heaven's name are you doing in Japan if you believe that this one's chosen, this one isn't, that one is, and this one isn't this? No, that's not what it's about. It's not about us. It's about God and what he has done for us in Jesus Christ, in his choosing of Jesus Christ and our response to his salvation given to us. But discover it for yourself. And that's what Paul is talking about. So that he brings us to that last word, glorified. He has glorified Jesus Christ. And that's what Paul has done. He has made him a glory to us. We love Jesus because of what he has done for us, but for who he is as our elder brother, as the firstborn from the dead, as the one who gave his life for us, that we might be at peace with God. So that as we talked about in the earlier chapters of of Romans, we talked about God being the just who justifies. God is just in what he does. Legally, the Christian message is a sound legal confirmation. It is not something that's fabricated out of the imagination of men. It is brought forward to us by centuries of those who understood what God's word was leading to. And it was coming to the place where God would be just in forgiving us our sin. That's critical. That isn't just some kind of hocus-pocus. It doesn't mean you just a shell game. It doesn't mean it's just trickery or sleight of hand. It's This is solid, legal basis for God to forgive my sin and yours on the basis of his son who was the Lamb of God and was the ransom for my soul and every man, woman, and child in the world. Praise his name. Our religion is not pie in the sky. It is not something that we just made up. This book was written and based upon those truths. So what then shall we say to these things? And then the second question. 
If God is for us, who is against us? A good question. We need to evaluate that. We need to really be able to evaluate what does it mean that I am saved? What does it mean that God has forgiven my sins? Evaluate it in terms of not just how do I feel. You know, so much of our Christianity these days, I'm sorry to say, is based upon how I feel when I get up in the morning or how tired I am when I go to bed at night or what happened to me during the day. No, it's not on that basis at all. It's based on solid legal grounds. And we need to evaluate that. If God is for us, who is against us? If my heart condemn me, God is greater than my heart. It means that it doesn't matter how I feel. That is the important thing. It's not how I feel. It's not an emotional reaction. It's based upon solid biblical foundation and truth. If God is for us, who is against us? And then Paul goes on to say, He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him for us all. We need to understand that when we say that we are a Christian, we're identifying with this symbol here. That is where God demonstrated, lifted up his son. For us to understand it was for our sin, for my sin. If God is for us, he did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us all. What does that mean? To be delivered. You remember the kiss of Judas? Judas, on the last night, betrayed Jesus Christ with a kiss, saying to those who were the enemies of Jesus so that they would mark this man and know that that is the man that they were after in the dark of night. And Judas went forward to kiss him. That was the deliverance. That was handing him over. Judas was doing this in regards to the judgment that God was already designed that Jesus would become the ransom for us all. That's that word delivered. So God delivered him. It wasn't Judas at all. It was God himself who set up his son to die for every one of us. And if God wouldn't spare him, what do you imagine was in God's heart? What is the love of God like if he would give even his own son? Oh, how he loved Jesus. Oh, how he loves you and me. That's what that means. And so if we have doubts about ourselves, if God is for us, who is against us? He did not spare his son. He's for us. And that's the truth that we 
needs to be emblazoned in our hearts. And it has nothing to do about how I feel about myself or my situation. It has everything to do about the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who died for me. That is the gospel. But he delivered him over for us all. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? Here we are at that word again, things. You know, we as people have too many things. We were just at home. I've got a two-car garage. Yes, I'm an American, and all Americans have two-car garages, or at least a good portion of them. And God has blessed us with a a little home, but it has a two-car garage, which means that the square footage in my garage is almost as big as the house that I live in, or half the size, I, I should say, of the house that I live in. But I had to sacrifice half of my garage And I built a a rack in that spot so that Katie and I could take all of our things out of our house and put them on these shelves. And when I got home, I was shocked. Why do we have all those things? And I started going through some of them. I found a watch that I thought I had lost, but I found it in some of this stuff. Things! How will he not also with him freely give us all things? No, I don't think that's what this word means, things. What he's talking about is those things that are of necessity for our Christian lives, for our daily walk in Jesus Christ, for the confidence and understanding that he hears our prayers. He knows how to answer those needs. And he's not going to withhold anything from us that are necessary. Jesus even said, how much more does he clothe the fields with flowers? They're dressed like better than Solomon, who was a very, very rich man. No, we're talking about reality the things that really matter. He will freely give us these things. There is so much that's in our salvation package that God has for us. The fourth question is, who will bring a charge against God's elect? Now here again is that word that I was citing. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? Who's the elect? Well, We talk about Israel. Israel is God's chosen people. We're talking about people that God had favor toward and chose them, not because they were good guys on the the face of the earth. Many of them were scoundrels. Many of them had faith, but many of them did not do what God desired of his people to do and live. But who, who will bring, then, a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies the following statement. 
if God has elected and chosen the lamb, that is the perfect lamb for us. In other words, what Paul's talking about here is that our salvation is secure in the one that God chose to be the sacrifice for our, for our sins. That makes us then elect by the fact that we choose also that lamb, Jesus Christ, and make him the Lord of our lives. Make him to be who he should be. It's in Jesus that I put my trust in no one else and nothing else. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? There are many charges against Jesus Christ. But none of them really hit the issue. And many of the the charges that come against you and I really are not the issue. People will look at us and say, well, he's not really a very good Christian. Or he or she is, is not living as a Christian. Or what I think is a Christian. But who's judging you? If our faith is in Jesus Christ and in the Lamb of God who died for us, it's not right for us to fall in with those who would charge against us. If there is sin, yes, we need to confess it. If there are those things that we know that the conviction of the Holy Spirit brings to bear on our hearts, we need to confess that. We are not of the, in, the, in the position to even judge ourselves and to be able to say, well, I'm not saved. I must not be saved. If you haven't put your trust in Jesus Christ, if you truly haven't confessed your sins, if you're living a double life, perhaps then you'd need to say, am I really following Jesus Christ or am I just buying into a good feeling? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? The answer, God is the one who justifies. He's the one that knows your heart. He's the one who knows what he has provided for you in Jesus Christ. And then the fifth question, who is the one who condemns? The statement, Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. And God, by the fact that he has provided Jesus Christ for us, he is not condemning us if we have put our trust in Jesus. Be sure that you're walking in the light and life of Jesus Christ in your life. Know that in your faith and being able to say, yes, Jesus Christ is Lord of my life. That's all that is required of us. It doesn't mean that we have to be a Billy Graham or we don't have to be a pastor or we don't even have to be able to say, well, 
I'm giving my whole life earnings or whatever to, to follow Jesus Christ. That's a given that we are followers of Jesus Christ. And it's not in how much we give or how much we serve. Those things don't count. It's what Jesus Christ has done for us. Jesus Christ is he who died, yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who intercedes for us. That's the place of authority, at the right hand of God. And so the case is settled for all of us. Number six, who will separate us from the love of Christ? This is a a question that Paul will develop here at the end of this chapter. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? The answer, no one. There's nothing that can separate us. He answers it with question, will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? That won't separate us. So by the fact that because we have put our trust in Jesus Christ, God stands there and says, I see my son covering this person. His blood covers this person. Each one of us who have put our trust in Jesus Christ. So that there is no separation for us from Christ. The only thing that will keep us from Christ or from a separation from the love of Christ is our sin that we hang on to, that we love and that we hold dear to us. But what he's saying here is who will separate us? Will it be tribulation? Somebody coming up to you with a gun to your head and say, don't confess Jesus Christ. Some people are suffering that these days in parts of the world. And it may come to us as well. God, give us grace that we will be able to say, I'm standing for Jesus Christ. And it doesn't matter. My life is secure in him. We're going to participate now in a communion time. It was when Jesus Christ was ready to go to the cross that he gathered his disciples together in an upper room. And he shared with them the Passover and was able to demonstrate to them what for centuries had been practiced among the children of Israel. In the choosing of a lamb, in the slaughter of that lamb, and the blood that was spilt on behalf of the family that was in that, under the covering of that lamb, that chosen lamb. So that what Jesus was doing was passing on to us the signs and symbols of our faith. That it's not in us, it's in the Lamb. It's in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ that our salvation is secure. Not in my goodness, 
not in all the good works that I do, but it's in the fact that he has done it for me. He's given me really all those things that I need for salvation. He's given that for you. That's the security that we have as believers. That's what God wants us to understand as we take this communion. This isn't just an act that by doing this, something magic happens. No, the reality is Jesus Christ has already died. He's already given us a ransom from our sins. He's already paid the price. All we're doing is saying, I acknowledge it. I'm thankful for your sacrifice. That's what this means. That's what the bread and what the wine means.